the title for today's talk is Going Where Frames of Reference Can't Go. It's really a sequels, sequel of yesterday's talk, which was entitled The Lure of the Frames of Reference. And I think it'll be helpful if I start by reviewing briefly what I said yesterday. Some of you may not have been here yesterday, of course. In fact, I think I know that some of you have not been here yesterday. And But even for those who were here, I think it's important to put this talk in the context of what I was saying yesterday. To bring back and rekindle that message so that today is uh, understood in that uh, context. When I say frames of reference, what I mean is the structure of concepts, values, customs, views, through which we perceive the world. And, and we do that. Habitually, we come with some references, and then what we experience, we compared with that. Examples of those frames of reference, among others, say, uh, ideological agendas. It's a big word, but we do have that. And, politics and philosophy and whatever. Our codification, our codes of what's uh, proper or improper, what's politically correct and what's not. Another example is the framing of all we do within the frame of time this thing here, this watch, and the clocks hanging in many places. With whichever of these uh, frames, the tendency is to confine, to corral ourselves, to box ourselves in, in our experience within those frames, of pre-existing, pre-elaborated frames. And this is something that we do regardless of whether it's useful or not. We do it because it feels kind of safer. It gives predictability and solidity to at least a, a, semblance, a semblance of predictability and solidity to our experience in, in the sea of change that we live, where we are groping for something that will be predictable. So just, just uh, one example at this point, we connect with somebody which uh, we regard this person in a certain way, and sure enough, 
soon we are at, he is this way or she is this way and so on in doing that of course one one pseudo benefit we get from that is that we we are protected from feeling anything about this person it's already categorized boxed in, in our views and of course in doing that we box ourselves in as well and this is not to say that frames of reference are not useful I mean I keep talking about the watch here you know 11 o'clock the talk and so on and 12 lunchtime and so on and, uh, and, and other frames too of course and, and I certainly acknowledge that uh, yesterday while saying that the, the question is can we hold them loosely can we avoid becoming attached to them clinging to them and letting them overshadow the reality of things so that was the thrust of yesterday's talk in a nutshell today I propose that we go a step further I propose that we do explore in our minds at least what would it be like not just to hold the frames of reference loosely but to venture beyond them to go where the frames of reference cannot go what would that be like in actuality and I'm going to be exploring this at different levels of So let me start with something that was shared yesterday at the inquiry group by somebody who's gone through very significant changes in her life and the gist of gist of what she said is like a kind of quote now that I feel comfortable in my skin this ease of being shows up everywhere that's, that's quite a significant thing you know feeling comfortable in one's skin not just not boxed in by anything external and premeditated but but embodied being embodied in our senses more precisely not just embodied but if I may coin a new word and minded as well you see because senses are body-mind there's no separation between so 
So opening to the awareness that is not pre-sketched, opening to the awareness of what we actually feel. That may or may not be what the person said, but that's uh, the obvious step. Not filtering experience through all frames of reference, but checking it as it feels, comfortably, with ease. And at times, yes, with some difficulty, because there's resistance, sure. Insofar as we can do that, we begin to step into the unexpected and into the unimagined. Within the frames of references, all we can do is live within the world that we imagined ourselves. Which, uh, amazingly, we think our imagination is so wild. Amazingly, so it's so constricted anyway. <laughs> let me let me move to another example and, and one that's again very well one, this one is really very simple. And we've talked about that here and with instructions and in the groups and it has to do with with opening our awareness to sounds. So you're sitting in meditation and you hear sound. It happens all the time, of course. And if we are receptive to that, we pay attention to the sound. And the next thing we know, sure it's happened to you, it certainly continues to happen to me, whether I like it or not, is I try to figure out what made that sound. So, in doing that, I filter my experience through the old molds. And furthermore, I have a tendency to judge and evaluate. to match it with whatever frames of references I have erected around that experience. The challenge is to explore what it would be like to be with the bare experience. Not that we need to do that all the time, just simply to taste what it's like to just be with that experience. Nothing else. It's just a beginning of self shaking off the frames of reference. Try it next time. In doing that, so you you begin to give the mind a taste of what's like to be unsupported by frames of reference. 
And to come to appreciate, in the particular case of sounds, not just the perception of each sound, but also the vastness of the ground of silence from where the sounds emerge and into which they go back into. So that's the sort of move I'm talking about in a very simple area. Another area where we are really constantly correcting these references is time. What does it mean to go beyond it? I don't know that it can be planned, but on, on Friday in my talk on a different subject, I did talk about my experience in the one-month retreat in, in November at the Forest Refuge. And, um, and I talked about in a different light. But let me go back to that experience in the light of the time frame of reference. So I was doing this one month, uh, totally silent, no interviews, no talks, quite, power quite powerful retreat. And at some time, at some point, I noticed that the rhythm of my rhythm of my walking was was totally out of my hands. You'd call or my legs, right? My legs was I mean was, with my totally of of the control of my my hand really what it's called, my hands. It's, it was so clearly as is the walking walked itself. That, it's all hard to describe. It doesn't seem very momentous as I tell it. But it was momentous as an experience. It was just totally at the mercy of, if you wish, the walking. Not just that the clock time disappeared, and often does uh, for periods of time when one is walking or sitting or whatever. It was... You know, there's one phenomena that I noticed that it's... Uh, rather pervasive is anticipation. This step anticipates the next. So this step is referred to the next. And as I'm finishing this, I'm already planning the next. It's not some reference. And, and that didn't happen. And I could find myself stopping at, at times not being absent, not thinking of something, just stopping because that's what the body seemed to need to do. But other times, in the middle of each step, a pause, and then resume. 
There was no structure to the walking. Just as with the breath, we allow the breath to flow its own rhythm, this is happening. In an area that one is generally using a lot of control for. So, and this, of course, pervaded all the rest of my experience uh, during much of that month. The sense of time really vanished. Was no word to be found. And I find myself resting in this, what we can call a sea of awareness. <laughs> you know, words don't really do justice to what I'm trying to say. The important part is that I felt totally at home, totally at home, at all levels. I remember at some point going into my room, and the the feeling that arose immediately, not even in thought, the feeling that arose in me was the feeling of being in my childhood room. Um, in fact, a, a room that connected in that feeling that the door was of connection was open with my parents' room where I was born. My times in Argentina, you were born at home, not in hospital. And, and it was so appropriate. You know, no, no, no need to make any story around this, just the feeling of I have to, to borrow something from T.S. Eliot here, because I, I don't know how to explain it, but anyway, it's a well-known uh, stances by him to go back to the place where it all started and see the place for the first time. See the place for the first time. Not a regression, just a, um, a being totally there. Such a luxury. To be in a place where everything is possible. And all happens spontaneously. All the habitual constructions put aside. Let me shift gears a bit, I mean a lot, a lot, a lot, and um, go back to my times as a scientist. As many of you must know, science is all constructions, it's all but constructions, sometimes called paradigms or whatever the language is. And I was there for half of my life. 
And what I want to point out that even in science, paradigms need to be occasionally put aside. Not just replaced by another paradigm, which is the habitual way how scientific revolutions occur, but put aside. What I'm thinking of here is a story of what's called, forgive me if I get a little technical, complementarity. Let me share with you the basics of this, and so you know what I'm driving at. And, and I'm using science because it's an extreme case where we think, oh, well, yeah, but there we need paradigms, right? I mean, in, in this uh, sort of silly sitting, you know, I mean, it's okay, you sit and uh, all that, but science is serious, yeah, you need paradigms. It, it happened in the 1920s started happening in the 1920s, I think it's really 20s, 30s, were a number of observations in physics, in, in subatomic physics, became very, very puzzling. In fact, inconsistent, in, irreconcilable with any single frame of reference or paradigm that anybody could think of. Just just to make it concrete, let me give you one form how this appeared. Take light, for instance. Here's light. Physicists uh, did a great number of experiments with light. It turns out that one set of experiments shows that light is a particle. And another set of experiments shows that light is a wave. In a way that these two things cannot be made compatible. I mean, physicists have tried until the, they, they just couldn't find a way of making these two observations coherent with any paradigm. This defied ordinary logic, too. You know, what is it? Wave or particle? Along came this giant of physics, a lovely Dane called Niels Bohr. Back when we had a glimpse of this, of him when we lived in Denmark. And Niels Bohr, who, who people, I mean, it's difficult to understand this. Wow, he's dead now. Niels Bohr proposed that both descriptions be espoused and held side by side as complementary to each other. It is both being true under different circumstances, and both pointing to a transcendent reality which lies beyond the reach of our thinking. This is 
goes under the name of the principle of complementarity in, in the language of physics. And this was like 20 years, uh, sorry, 80 years ago. And in the course of those 80 years, scientists have worked very hard trying to provide a unitary model that would supersede this principle of complementarity. All these efforts, all these attempts have come to zilch. Now, many physicists, and I have that first hand from one of them, many physicists are very nervous about that. They find this intolerable. It is a situation, okay, I mean, well, what can we do? But it's a situation that's got to be superated, superated you know, overcome or ignored. And there's a lot of ignoring going on. <laughs> For others, including Niels Bohr until the end of his life, complementarity is not just important in physics. It's also an insightful, insightful reminder of the limitation of our minds and our senses. Let me just quote uh, from one of his writings. It has been my desire to emphasize as strongly as possible how profoundly the new knowledge, he's talking about complementarity, has shaken the foundations underlying the building up of concepts on which not only the classical descriptions of physics rest, but also, this is important point, also our ordinary mode of thinking. In the light of the Zen teaching, you see, complementarity becomes what Zen teachers call a koan. That is to say, a puzzle that's not to be solved intellectually, but that brings us to deep insights. Invite us to allow ourselves to go where the ordinary mode of thinking in the language of Niels Bohr, where the frames of reference in the language I've been using today can't go. This is the great adventure that's possible through the practice. We come to these places where the frames don't fit. We, we try to cling to them as much as we can. And then we get a glimpse of the possibility of going beyond. 
not by rejecting the frames of reference. It's not to, to, to take issue with the frames of reference. Simply that they're not appropriate to go where we want to go, just that it is in complementarity. I mean, physics, with, with the limitations that's working, has, has tremendous successes, sometimes very regrettable successes, like atomic bomb and things like that. <laughs> but, but anyway, to go into approval or disapproval, the, the frames have been useful up to a point. But let's not, let them keep us from going beyond. In the, I was uh, pretty enchanted reading an article in the Shambhala Sun by Joan Sutherland. And I'd like to share with you what she says, because I think she puts it very well. It's um, current Shambhala, no, sorry, last year, March 2005, Shambhala Sun. I start from somewhere in the middle. Mostly, as we go about our everyday lives, what's in the foreground is a realm of place and time. A world where we have sex, eat peaches, and have car accidents. Sometimes in meditation, or just walk, walking down the street on a blustery day, all of that proceeds, yeah. Also walking down the street in the last three days is not, you know, so pushing meditation. It's fair enough. All of that recedes, and for a while, what's in the foreground is how timeless and limitless and radiant the universe is. As our meditation goes along, we might notice that these two perspectives begin to blend into each other, foreground and background, and no longer so distinct. And it isn't a matter anymore of choosing between them. More and more, the world begins to feel like one whole thing, one continuous ground, full of life, like the white herons in the mist, where the birds end and the clouds begin. There's a grace and a poignancy to experience life in this way. The dream of the world becomes a kind of field of awareness. We begin to experience things as rising and falling in that field, like heroes stretching and slowing, flapping their wings. A hungry child appears in the field, a dream of white elephants. A thought arises, 
that thought lasts a while, that thought goes away. What we've experienced as a busy, insistent and separate self is becoming part of the field of awareness. Not a creature in the field, not an observer in it, but the field itself, in which everything, even the parts of ourselves we are so familiar with, rise and fall as in a dream. So we, we find ways of opening up of exploring a world that is unfamiliar and at times it becomes totally magic. I'd like to give uh, now Mary Oliver the last word with her poem Daisies. It is possible, I suppose, that sometime we will learn everything there is to learn. What the world is, for example, and what it means. I think this as I'm crossing from one field to another in summer, and the mockingbird is mocking me as one who either knows enough already or knows enough to be perfectly content not knowing. Song being born of quest, he knows this. He must turn silent where he suddenly assaulted with answers. Instead, Oh, hear his wild, caustic, tender, warbling, ceaselessly an answer. At my feet, the white petal daisies display the small suns of the centerpiece. There, if you don't mind my saying so, the hearts. Of course, I could be wrong. Perhaps the hearts are pale and narrow and hidden in the roots. What I do know, sorry, what do I know? But this, it is heaven itself to take what is given, to see what is plain, what the sun lights up willingly, for example. I think this as I reach down, not to pick, but merely to touch. So, for example, the suitability of the field for the daisies, and the daisies for the field. And the, the suitability of the field for the daisies, and the daisies for the field. A 
just sit in silence for five minutes or so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.